G'day, I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. And in this episode, we look at the growing influence of nudge, an effective policy tool or a passing fad. Humans are imperfect. Uh, we need all the help we can get. It's possible. It's easy to improve choices without restricting options. We shouldn't use bans and mandates, just Nudge. That's Richard Thaler, co-author with Kaz Sunstein of Nudge, improving decisions about health, wealth and happiness. He was speaking at the Royal Society for the Arts back in 2008, the year the book was published. So today we want to explore what is this thing called Nudge? Can it be effective as a policy tool? Can it really encourage us to eat less chocolate or to pay our parking fines on time? Let's find out what our guests have to say. Professor Abigail Payne is Director of the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research. She joins me in the studio today. Welcome, Abigail. Thank you, Glenn, for having me. And joining us on Skype from Cambridge is Dr David Halpin, the board director and chief executive of the Behavioural Insights team. The team was launched by the Cameron government in 2010 and is now a mutual joint venture with the UK government and the innovation charity Nesta. David, welcome. Morning, nice to be here. Can I start with you, David? Nudge theory, as we said, came into prominence in 2008, but its roots go back much further, don't they? Yeah, they do. I think governments on and off have been thinking about this for a long time. I start my own book on subjects talking about the introduction of the potato to Europe hundreds of years ago, where various kind of rulers thought it'd be a good idea to diversify crops. And it's quite hard to get people to like a potato. They've never seen this rather odd looking vegetable before. Um, And they tried to use various combinations of rules and requirements and telling people to eat them. But they also ended up, particularly famously Frederick the Great, using nudges too to try and persuade people to actually um, want to eat these things so there is a long history um even more recently the use of um white lines on roads is actually a good example of a nudge and that goes back to before 1920. so what exactly is a nudge and, and how does it fit within behavioral economics well you've already hinted at a slight and a subtle important difference so a nudge is generally particularly in in u.s parlance thought to be a sort of gentle way of of leaving choice open but encouraging someone to do something so a simple example would be um removing friction or is that a white line in the road just encourages people or cues them to go one way or the other or a rumble strip on the edge of a motorway wakes you up if you're having to drift towards the central reservation you might all think of these things as nudges um essentially making it easier to make a, a good or a healthy choice without actually requiring it there is a slightly broader issue which is um the use of just a more realistic theory of human behavior of which nudge would give you one route through but you might say even if you're designing you know a sanction or a you know a price incentive you can still use an understanding of psychology to improve how well it works well i'm hoping to explore that but can i ask you professor abigail Payne, when did you first encounter behavioral economics so my my own background is i actually studied charitable giving and in charitable giving, we've used uh, lab experiments. Um, while I use empirical work, um, the notion of behavior and how people think about issues uh, such as giving, such as public goods, services, don't easily fit into a model 
of economics where we tend to think of utility. How do we think about our preferences? How do we consume? So it goes way back to, in some ways, back to my PhD and my thinking about those issues. I think what David has raised is that nudge is an activity that is studied by many disciplines. So we have psychology, we have economics, um, we have informational sciences. Um, You could keep going down the line along different disciplines. So if we start to think about interdisciplinary research, this is a true example of that type of research. In the area of economics, the concern that we have with nudge is that um, our standard models may not explain all behavior. Now the question is, why don't we explain all behavior? That can include things that, well, maybe people don't behave rationally. We'd like to think that people have full information, understand costs, understand benefits, understand consequences. But we have too many examples where they don't behave the way that we economic models would think. So one of the interesting aspects of Nudge is how quickly it went into practice. And of course, David, your behavioral insights team set up by the Cameron government in 2010 is an early and important example of that. Can you tell us about the genesis and aims of the team? Yeah, sure. So as you say, it dates from 2010, although some work was already going on before that in the run-up to the 2010 election. There was both interest inside the administration um, from the cabinet secretary and the Institute for Government, where I was then, um, did a joint piece of work with the cabinet office looking at the application of behavioral science to policy. Um, In fact, we had done a piece of work inside the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit a decade before, but it got into political difficulties, which maybe we'll come back to. But the key thing in 2010 is you had an incoming government, which both um, had a kind of general inclination to to not turn to legislation in its usage. And also it was broke, you had a massive structural deficit. So you'd essentially taken away the two principal tools with the normal mainstay of government, um, legislation and spending money. Um, so in that context, it particularly fitted then with the kind of the philosophy and um, the zeitgeist of the moment to identify these alternative approaches to affecting human behavior. Well, taking those political difficulties for a moment, many people criticize the nudge approach because it seeks to influence the public without the public necessarily knowing it. And there were critiques, for example, that the nudge theory wasn't open to the, say, Freedom of Information Act. You couldn't find out what government was doing around nudge unless you knew how to ask. How did you deal with that initial skepticism? And how have those political difficulties been fronted? Um, Well, I don't see any reason why it couldn't be subject to freedom of information, by the way, just as much as anything else was. But also, more importantly, um, the government was and always has been pretty open here in the UK about the use of these techniques. We we publish regularly um, annual reports as well as reports along the way so people can see it. Um, also, a lot of nudges uh, are actually pretty transparent. So, you know, sort of give you old examples of white lines on the road. I mean, if you really want to drift into the other side of the road, you can do so. Um, but it's kind of giving you a cue about which side you're supposed to be on um, or the other. Similarly, the most famous of all, the changing of defaults on pensions, which have proven to be extraordinarily effective. Um, essentially, you've, you've still got an option there. You, you still have a choice to opt out. It's just that you opt out rather than opt in. So it's it's kind of changed the friction. It's taken away the friction to becoming a saver. Um, but it's pretty transparent as to what's going on. Um, so, of course, there are examples. If you're going to rewrite a tax letter, 
saying most people pay their tax on time. Um, again, it's sort of transparent what you're doing. So, you know, I, I hope that makes some sort of sense. Um, I realise that what you can do is you can't always tell someone they're taking part in a variation. But otherwise, I think our, our government policy, and I think it's true for most governments, we always recommend you need to be quite open about what we're doing um, in, in order to maintain public confidence in these types of techniques. So, David, you've mentioned transparency and the importance of being upfront with citizens and ministers about how a nudge is to work. But how is this transparency to be realised? Is this just written to the terms and conditions for consumers or are there other ways of communicating? Well, I think there are, I mean, by the way, there's a basic point which um, a key area for this is consumer behaviour. And one reason why governments are pulled into this is precisely because of bad behaviour sometimes by the consumer uh, in the consumer sector. So where you have details that are tucked away in terms and conditions, we know that no one reads them or you just click on them. You know, famously, the Apple terms and conditions are sort of, you know, many millions of words long. Um, so that isn't kind of, you know, that's not acceptable, you might say. Um, so regulators need to have to think about this quite carefully. Um, my own view, also governments need to do that. It's not good enough, which is why you have to find other ways of getting permission of the public, um, such as the use of, of more kind of uh, deliberative forums and other democratic mechanisms too along the way. I'm going to pick up on, on David's last point. Um, I think my interpretation of the transparency is that it's going to encourage governments to better engage with citizens and to get their opinions and their, their thoughts. So to the extent that we think that citizens feel disengaged from government, I think nudge is actually going to be a vehicle for re-engaging with citizens. Um, David, I wouldn't mind asking you a question. Early on, uh, some of the nudge or behavioral research actually kind of suggested that nudge was more like a last mile problem where, you know, the typical person, so take the tax compliance, the typical person already files their taxes. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to get that extra last bit uh, individuals filing their taxes. So in some ways, is nudge really just encouraging the behavior that's already happening in society and doing it in a soft way? Very often there's a last mile problem. And as you may know, um, Dilip Soman, a very good payable sort of economist, has written a book using that line. Um, and it's historically been very neglected. So you pass a law and you think, oh, you've done, you know, it's all sorted out. But actually, if the forms in which it's written, the way in which it's presented, um, the way in which someone in a, you know, he's trying to get someone back to work faster, use a wording which is ineffective, um, that's really very consequential. But it would be wrong to only characterize it as a last mile problem. So there are some areas where we've ended up taking a very different policy line, indeed different from Australia, on the basis of behavioral insights, essentially. So an obvious one and a controversial one I know in Australia is we took a very different line on electronic cigarettes um, because we felt that where well, you've got an addictive behavior, the evidence was suggesting you're much better off to introduce a substitution. That's not a last mile issue. That's a pretty fundamental question as to whether you're going to make electronic cigarettes widely available. We've done that in the in the UK. Of course, Australia has gone a different route. Um, in the UK, electronic cigarettes are now the primary route to quitting smoking and are making a very significant contribution in our view. So definitely a last mile problem, but not only. A central idea of nudge is choice architecture, the careful design of the environments in which people make choices. David, can you explain more about choice architecture and how it works in different situations? 
Yes, um, and as Abigail was saying, it's a key kind of illustration of a sort of a weak link in certain economic accounts, which tend to be neglectful of these details. So the classic example is you're going into a restaurant or a canteen. What do you see first? You see the salad or do you see the chips? Um, and it's incredibly consequential affecting your behavior. In fact, it's not just the positioning of it, the size of the plates, the size of the serving, um, you know, the servers, everything around this affects how much you eat. Um, and the effect sizes are very, very large. So the basic argument is whether you like it or not, someone is going to have to decide that sequence, that so-called choice architecture. Well, we should think carefully about what it is, given how incredibly influential it is, and try and set it in a way which is likely to be optimum for citizens. So in the case of uh, the canteen, you might decide, well, why don't we put the healthy food first rather than second? So that's the essence of it. It's very, very powerful. Abigail, how is a nudge idea identified and trialled, and how important is experimentation in this approach? Oh, it's a, it's extremely important. Um, so what we know is that you have to test, you have to design, and you have to understand the complexity of the, of the issue you're trying to address. Um, so, you know, I would think of it first as what is the issue? What's the problem you want to address, right? And so there's, before you can get even get to the point of testing a nudge idea, you have to understand what's driving the behavior that you want to change. And then you have to start thinking about what are ways to guide people to change their behavior. And it's not uncommon that you have to think about not just one option, but many options, and you test those options and figure out for the population you're targeting which option is the best option. So that does introduce an interesting question. Uh, David, in, in the area of pharmaceuticals, we know there's been a problem with selective reporting of drug trials. You only report positive trials, which led to the introduction of mandatory pre-registration of trials and their outcomes. Is there an equivalent for nudges? Is there an ethical question about how we experiment and how we report the outcomes? Well, you mentioned two things, I think, there. One is the ethics and also about the good conduct in, in relation to methods. So as, as you will know, probably your listeners will know, um, certainly in the U.S. has been major issues about replication concerns, especially about small sample studies, which have been people have struggled to replicate. So um, in general, I think it's considered good practice to publish protocols. We try and do that wherever we can. I mean, there are sometimes we're working with departments where they would rather not publish straight away if it's sensitive. But I think it is good practice going forward. There's an additional issue around um, ethics. Of course, it always applies in relation to trials, particularly when people might not be aware of the fact that, you know, several different letters or different websites are being used. And um, it, it's appropriate that there be some kind of ethical clearance process. Because when you're doing inside government, um, unlike in a university, you do also have the whole issue about, well, you've got elected ministers who are taking a view on these issues. But my own view is that um, it's really important that governments, when they want to use these techniques, do indeed ask the public, not just in relation to trials in a narrow sense, but in a broader way, um, what do you think? Um, in fact, a great example in Melbourne was um, organised by Vic Health uh, of a deliberative forum on obesity, where the public, a sample of 120 people from Victoria were asked, well, what do you think? They were shown all the evidence about what is it that drives your behaviour, which is strongly behavioural often, um, of course. Um, and they came up with some pretty radical ideas. Um, and I think that's pretty good practice. We were able to sustain the position on changing defaults on pensions, in my view, 
um, which is quite radical in people's minds, because there have been a very, very good public consultation. So that's not just about trials, it's actually also about changing policy itself. Can you say just a bit more about the change in pensions, because it's an interesting example? Yeah, so um, I know there's some similarities in Australia, certainly New Zealand. Um, so for 30, 40 years in certainly Anglo-Saxon countries, we've struggled to get people to save more for their pensions. And our primary instrument has been a financial incentive. If you put some money in, then the employer will top it up, and so will the government um, as well. We currently spend literally tens of billions of, of pounds or dollars um, a year on tax subsidies. Our best estimate of their effectiveness from Raj Chetty at Harvard is that for about every every dollar of tax subsidy, you get about one cent of extra saving. Incredibly ineffective. In contrast, changing the default from an opt-in system where you have to fill in a you know a form or whatever to do to an opt-out, so you don't have to fill out a form unless you decide you don't want to save, is transformative. So typically, we see on both sides of the Atlantic about 90% of eligible savers stick with the default in relation to saving. So in the UK, since 2012, when we started to introduce this change, we have an estimated extra six and a half million people saving for their pensions. So it's a very powerful illustration for lots of reasons, and it, it certainly drives home the point about how effective a so-called nudge can be compared to a conventional and quite expensive, um, essentially, tax subsidy or conventional instrument. I agree with you that with the pension, that's a great example of nudge working. Um, but there is an, an example of where nudge can have a negative effect. So there's uh, research that David Byrne in the economics department here did on electricity use. And there's a paper he wrote that's called the boomerang effect. And the idea is that you know there were people that were already conserving energy, but when they found out that they were conserving more than the typical person, they changed their behavior in a negative way. Whereas there were those that were on the other side that were not conserving, but when they learned how much electricity they were using, they changed their behavior. And so sometimes you have to be very careful when you're testing and when you're deciding what kind of nudge you're doing, you target the right population because you can end up with a negative effect of nudge. And this takes us to the very interesting and important role of social proof in nudge, which of course was made famous 30 years ago by the book Influence, arguing that social context shapes actions. People worry about what others think. David gave us the example earlier, if you want to get people to pay their taxes, send them a letter saying, most people in your suburb have already paid their taxes this year. If you want to encourage organ donations, you say every day thousands of people sign up to be donors, why don't you be one of them? Uh, And so framing it as this is how others are behaving and this is how you might want to behave is really important. Uh, Underlying that, therefore, is a theory of social behavior, a theory of how people's motivations work. And and David, you must have to deal with this all the time because you've described not a single idea of a nudge, but in fact, a whole range of different interventions, all of which serve as nudges, and all of which presumably work from a concept of what human motivation uh, is relevant in this policy area. That's right. I think um, one of the things that our everyday existence is slightly misleading on is it conceals the fact that there are very many different kinds of processes and influences that are affecting our behavior all the time. So you mentioned one of them is um, essentially social influence, particularly what are other people doing, technically known as a declarative social norm. So we're influenced more by what other people are doing, not by what they're saying or what the written rule is. Um, so there are many examples of those. Um, yes, the one about most people pay their tax on time. 
and you're one of the few that yet to do so, by the way, even more powerful. Um, we found that also works, for example, with doctors. We we told GPs, general practitioners, which ones were using more um, antibiotics and others, and it was associated with significant reduction in their use. Um, energy use, you just mentioned, of course, earlier, and it can backfire, which is why you tend to make a reference to not the average, but you say the most efficient of your neighbours are using this much, and then it gets rid of that negative effect. But that's just one of a whole number. So we sometimes use a very simple mnemonic in the behavioural insights team. East, it's just, if you think about at least these four basic factors, easy, frictional facts are very, very powerful. Um, the attractiveness, you know, the profiling, to what extent something catches your attention uh, and so on, personalization, et cetera, would be under there. The S is social, what are other people doing, but also forces such as reciprocity. If someone helps you, you kind of strongly want to help them back. And the T is timely. Um, when we think of laws, we often assume they apply all the time, but in human behavior, it's not quite like that. There are certain moments when we're very influenced, particularly when our behavior, for example, is disrupted for other reasons, such as we've moved house or so on, we're much more amenable to other kinds of influences. So yes, there's a whole bundle of sort of tools, as it were, inside that box. Abigail, should we think about these successful nudges as very important service improvements, and they certainly are that, are they profound changes to the way government operates, or are they, in a sense, neat tricks to, at the margins, in the last mile, as you described it, making a change? I think the answer to your question is both. So I, I think there are some things that we do that will be the last mile, but it will be an important last mile. I think there are other things that we can do to change the way we view or perceive issues. Nudge is based on individual behavior. One issue we have to think about is what does the society want? And so we still have to bring in philosophy. We have to bring in ethics. Uh, we have to bring in the values of the country and uh, thinking about these things. So I take the perspective that nudge is an important tool, but it's not the only tool. So we still need laws, we still need requirements, we still need regulations. But if there are ways that we can moderate the laws and the regulations so that people see the value of complying within a society, what those norms are, nudge can be really an effective tool. And when you want to change behavior, and I'm thinking of your research on charitable giving, can nudge be important here? Yes, it is. It's quite important. Um, when it comes to charitable giving, there's both a positive side and a negative side. So the positive side is it may be that you want to give, you don't know what to give to. So I approach you and I say, hey, here's a great charity to give to. Happens to be a university. They care about student education. We do basic research. Don't you want to give? And because you know me or you feel pressure, you give. So you've satisfied your desire to give. Right? So that's great. But what if you wanted to give, but you wanted to give to something else and you feel pressure from me to give to the university when in fact you wanted to give to a homeless shelter? I might have made you worse off. Although the university would be very grateful. <laughs> David, is, is nudge a profound change to the way government does business or is it a, a neat improvement and refinement? Well, it's both those things. So I think traditionally, and remember, I, I mean, I worked for six years in the prime minister strategy uh, in a previous role. So, you know, I've thought about this sort of big strategy type issues, but it's traditionally been very neglectful of all these details. So, you know, you can 
pass a law or whatever, or you want to have a big subsidy to encourage people to buy their own homes or whatever, if you don't look at the forms or the details of the process, it turns out you're really missing a very, very big trick indeed. Um, so these factors are, you know, not not some minor detail. I mean, for example, even suicide rates are strongly affected by the availability of different channels. So, so you know, if the most important decision in your life, whether to end it, is affected by what seem like small frictional factors, we assure you that other aspects of your life will be affected that way. That is profound in some other ways too. So it's profound for us as human beings to realize that um, we use the same mental shortcuts to make big decisions in life, um, not just as to whether we pay our taxes on time. Um, I'd say there's one other area where it's actually been game changing, which is maybe less obvious. We touched on earlier that um, this approach has been associated certainly in the UK and now in Australia. So New South Wales doing fantastic work and, and also now in Victoria and of course Canberra. Um, but it's brought in its wake a, a very strong form of empiricism. So in other words, saying we don't know the answer quite often, how people respond. So let's test it. Let's try variations in policy. And in its own way, I think that's as if not more profound a change for how we do government. Um, it kind of brings in this sense of, of said humility and the ability to keep learning and improving. And I think myself that's as profound a change as the idea of introducing a more realistic model of human behavior. I think I would add to that in that it's encouraging governments to take on a willingness to fail, right? To try things out and then see if they can succeed and if they, and if they can, great, and if they can't, keep trying. And that's something you don't see in government as readily as you would see in the private sector. So Abigail, does the nudge work for you if you can see how it's been constructed? That is, if you understand this is a nudge, does it change your behavior? I, I think that's probably an open question. Well, right? David, <laughs> for you, you've worked on this for no, so many I, I years now. I think we actually do have quite good data on that. It's a fascinating thing, and it goes to this issue about choice, right? So that, um, interestingly, for example, George Lonestein some very detailed work on defaults, which shows that even when you point out to people that a default has been set on a major issue such as you know, how you'd like end-of-life care to be done, people are still strongly influenced, very strongly influenced by the default, even when it's been pointed out to them this has been set as an arbitrary default. So it does seem very profoundly powerful, but of course people can override it. If you want to know everyday example is that large numbers of people who wear watches, I don't know if you do, Glenn, do. Um, set their watch a few minutes fast. You say, well, hang on, how, how does that work? You know that your watch is fast. Um, but it still works as a nudge, particularly if you're running late for a meeting or you think, oh, my goodness, I better go right now. So um, even when they're laid bare, we're able to nudge ourselves and it seems to be still persistently powerful. Unless, of course, you don't want to do that thing, which is the beauty of a nudge. You can override it, um, unlike a, a law. So it's a nice aspect. So let's explore this freedom of choice idea that you've just brought up, uh, David, if we may. Thaler and Sunstein couch nudge in terms of what they call libertarian paternalism. They argue, and I quote, it is both possible and legitimate for private and public institutions to affect behavior while still respecting freedom of choice. You don't have to follow the nudge, even if you're encouraged to do so. And you've just pointed to the importance of default, which is really important, which Thaler and Sunstein called the year whatever heuristic in which people stick with the default even when it's incredibly easy to change. So is nudge, in a sense, a clever way of preying on our laziness? And can it be seen as a form of manipulation, even if it's manipulation with a good end? 
Yeah, I, I personally don't particularly like the idea of phrasing it as manipulation because I think is that it should be open and ideally it's often you've got permission from the public to use that type of approach. Um, in the US world, this is certainly a very major part of it, that it should be so-called choice enhancing or at least not choice removing. And you can go a long way in, in that direction. So the changing of defaults is the most obvious one around pensions um, or the changing of choice architecture. Um, I think it actually doesn't quite capture the full range of it. And certainly if you look at how it's being used in the UK or indeed in Australia, um, we do want people to pay their taxes. You know, we do want to write government communications to be more effective. We do want to, you know, encourage young people to study harder and you can't do that just with legislation. So that is more than just, I think, choice enhancing and changing a default. It is trying to work out, you know, what are more effective ways of doing all kinds of things by thinking more realistically about human behavior. So you can definitely run that argument. You can run it quite a long way. And that is very dominant in the US. I actually don't think it completely encapsulates for range with which these kind of approaches are being used. So let's explore it with Abigail for a minute. On the website for the new behavioral economics team in Canberra, it states, and I quote, we do not try to reshape anyone's views about what is best for them. We help people turn their best intentions into actions. And yet clearly there's an ethical question here about how we frame choices and how we try and change behavior in some cases without people understanding that's how it's going. Are we simply addressing the biases that are there in the original material or do we face ethical choices as part of the nudge campaign? I think we're always going to have ethical choices, but whether you're providing information to somebody that might be considered a nudge or not a nudge, you still have to consider the wording you're using. If you're issuing a regulation, if you're creating a requirement to do something, you have to decide what approach do you take, right? So I think what nudge does is it just makes us more conscientious about what words we use and what approach we take. And so long as that's where the transparency comes into play, that's where the willingness to question, the willingness to do more research, I think is actually a really good thing for the government. I, I think that's absolutely right, if I might say. I just think, um, as I said, I think the, the Vic Health Deliberative Forum was a great example of the right way of doing this, is actually lay out those choices and questions to a sample of the public often along the way and say, well, what do you think would be a better way of doing this? And then, yes, try and maintain choice wherever you can, even introduce it additionally, often using these kind of a, um, approaches where possible. But ultimately, it's also just about designing public services that were almost knocking the rough corners off them to make them more effectively. So once you've decided you want a car, right, that's a kind of fundamental choice, you might as well say, well, why don't we use a wind tunnel to make it as sleek and as effective and as efficient as possible? So in the same way, you know, once you've decided, well, people should pay their taxes and I don't want to pay my neighbor's taxes, well, you try and make the request as and the process as easy as possible and as effective as possible. And I think that's a way of thinking about it. So let's take up this effectiveness question because it's a fascinating one. Abigail, in a paper published by the Melbourne Institute last year, Reuben Finnegan argued that, I quote, there is right under our noses an unnoticed world of behavioural evidence showing the traditional policy tools like taxes, transfers and mandates are in many cases superior to nudges. Is the effectiveness of the nudge overrated? Hmm. 
Well, you're asking me to agree with <laughs> with that <laughs> statement, and I don't necessarily agree with that statement. I actually think that nudge is complementary. Um, so I think I, one of the things we can think about policy, we can think about like take social welfare, social services. We think about what's the lifetime cost of social welfare. The government is there to support individuals. The government is there to support society. But we also have to raise money through taxes, through other sources. And so we have to think about how do we make effective use of those resources. So if we can use nudge or if we can use information, if we can use policies to try to encourage um, or decrease the lifetime cost of social welfare, that makes society better off overall. Um, I'm going to go back to the notion that nudge is a tool. There are other tools as well that we should be using in formulating policy. And David, where does nudge fit alongside those other more traditional public policy tools? Well, it's absolutely. It's an additional set of tools and levers which turn out to be um, very effective, often highlighting rather neglected areas um, of policy and practice. Um, But you can also, when you are using existing tools, you can try and introduce a more effective or a realistic model of human behavior. I mean, we ourselves, you know, in the UK, you may know, we've recently decided to introduce a sugar tax. Um, we did that partly on behavioral evidence and we've used behavioral evidence to, to shape it to be more effective, we believe, to drive particularly reformulation behavior by manufacturers and others. So we very much see it as complementary. I know Cass Sunstein would have the same view in Washington when he was there, which is if you're going to regulate, well, try and make regulation effective and easy to use and involve, you know, low friction if possible. So that's why it's not just about nudges. It's also about applying behavioral science across all kind of tools that we use. So you've mentioned a sugar tax. Let's take another example, an advertisement created for Vic Health back in 2014, trying to drive culture change around young people and drinking. Hey, man, I'll get you another. Oh, I can't have another one, mate. I'm on antibiotics. What for? Just some stuff I've got going on. What stuff? Snake eye. Snake eye? The snake bit me in the eye. He's become quite attached. You don't need an excuse. Join the 61% of young Victorians who don't drink to get drunk. Find out more at noexcuseneeded.com.au. David, is this an example of a nudge at work? Yeah, I actually I think I, I remember that about snake eyes. Yeah, because uh, what it hasn't been is systematically tested, but there's a lot of components in it which look like they're effective. It uses humour. It introduces um, or gives the, the individual a kind of tool, um, like, and if this thing happens, you don't need an excuse. You just, it's okay to say no. It also mentions in their social norms that most people actually don't drink too much. And in some populations, that's very important. So, for example, in student populations, you may well, in fact, do systematically overestimate the prevalence of drinking and unsafe sex and so on in others. And that, in turn, affects your behavior. So it has built into it essentially some kinds of nudges, but you might also just say it's effective persuasion. And you gave the example of a sugar tax, and there's an interesting difference here. There's persuasion and there's taxation as different ways you might address issues like obesity or alcohol. How do you judge what's the experimentation that would allow you to say a tax is more effective in these circumstances and persuasion in those? Well, Built in your question is, remember, a very radical point of view, which is that you might actually try and test it rather than just pronounce it on the world. Um, so we, in fact, with Vic Health and others, um, ran a series of trials in your own Alfred Hospital, testing the effectiveness of different techniques. So we did 
test price differences in vending machines. And we're able to estimate the elasticity, the impact of what happens on price. But also another equally powerful, in some ways even more powerful one, was just changing the choice architecture in the main canteen. So if you put the unhealthy drinks, which were still available, but they were a bit harder to reach, it led, I think, to a 28% reduction in their consumption and an increase in more healthy drinks. And most people, they certainly weren't bothered, and most people didn't even notice the change at all. So you can actually test the effectiveness of different techniques and work out under what circumstances which will be more effective. Abigail, the literature suggests that two in every 10 nudge experiments fail, that when tried they produce no results. How would you weigh up the difference between using a tax approach or a traditional policy tool approach and using a nudge approach? Um, what I don't know is actually if we were to say X number of policies, what percentage of them are effective. Yeah. Right? So that's what we don't know. That's right. Um, I think an 80% success rate would be a very optimistic <laughs> call. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, if only. <laughs> yes. Um, when we tend to think about basic science, so you think about a cure for a disease, we know that we have to experiment a lot before we find the right solution. And so I think that the most effective nudges are the ones that take existing data, try to understand the issue, then they run randomized control trials where they're testing out not just one option but several options to figure out what are the best options. And then think about for the successful options, can we scale it up? And what are the implications if we change the population from what we were using under the randomized control trial? So on the one hand, the nudge itself can be very cost-effective. The understanding of some of these more complex problems in the long run will be cost-effective, but you still have to invest in understanding the issue. Professor Abigail Payne, do you see the nudge paradigm as something that has just begun and will play out much more extensively? Or is the traditional economic model finding behavioral economics and drawing it into the classical model? I guess I would uh, agree with your latter point. Nudge is here. Yep. Uh, behavioral economics is here. We will continue to use it as a tool, uh, but it's not the only tool. We will continue to use classical economics what classical economics does is that we have theories, we have models. We can refine those models and those theories based on what we learn off the behavioral economics. But at the same time, behavioral economics helps to fill gaps that classical economics may not be able to explain. I think that there's a variety of tools. And at the Institute, we will be getting more engaged in behavioral economics, but we will continue to do the work we do on surveys such as HILDA, work with administrative data, uh, that we work with various government agencies, and we will continue to do other types of research. So it's one of many tools. Dr. David Halpin, how do you see the future for Nudge? I think it's very bright. Um, it's, it's proven to be an incredibly powerful and often relatively cheap tool. Um, Australia actually is one of the countries in the world which I think is fastest to move on it. The New South Wales team is doing extraordinarily good work and now Victoria following suit and indeed Canberra too. So um, I think it's very exciting. It's opened up, um, I think, a whole load of new lines of attack on so-called wicked problems such as obesity or social mobility. Um, the other thing I think it has brought in its wake, which you touched on in this interview today, is that it's brought a kind of empiricism. So people do ask of nudges, is it effective? Can you run a, a randomized controlled trial? 
Well, you can ask those same questions of tax instruments or even laws and so on. And why not? You know, it's really important in many areas, such as in education, that yes, let's figure out, you know, more effective ways of giving feedback to kids. But we can ask of everything else that is done. And it's, I think, helping to bring um, a wave of empiricism, which may be its kind of greatest legacy, I think. A very big thanks to my guests today, Professor Abigail Payne, Director of the Melbourne Institute of Applied Economic and Social Research. Thank you, Glenn. And from Cambridge, Dr. David Halpin, the Board Director and Chief Executive of the Behavioural Insights Team. Thanks very much, Glenn. And finally today, to quote the words of Richard Thaler, if you want to encourage someone to do something, make it easy. And there's nothing easier than subscribing to The Policy Shop. Just head to iTunes and opt in to have your say in your feed each month. And while you're doing that, why not leave a review? We'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. I'm Glenn Davis. Thank you for your company on The Policy Shop. This episode of The Policy Shop was produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Nabar. Research was by Paul Gray, Ellie MacDonald and Dr. Lauren Palmer. Subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes or listen on pursuit.unimelb.edu.au. Copyright, University of Melbourne, 2016.